We're turning now to God's Word. We're going to be looking at, we're uh, continuing our study through 1 Samuel. We're in the second part of uh, 1 Samuel 16, and uh, you can follow along right there in your bulletin. This is uh, the Word of the Lord. Then Samuel uh, took the horn of oil and anointed uh, David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and uh, you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore uh, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his son Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your holy word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us that you'd take uh, these inerrant, inspired words, and that you would imply, uh, apply them into our lives, into our community, into our culture, that uh, we would understand what it means to trust you, to believe in you, and to obey you, and to follow you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see uh, today, our, our topic is uh, on being a man, and I'm not sure if that's a controversial topic for you or not. Some of you might say, yes, I, I want to hear a sermon on that, and some of you might say, I don't want to hear a sermon on that. Um, but I'll tell you one reason why I think uh, this is an important topic for us uh, to talk about. I've been reading a book uh, recently by uh, Louise Perry. Uh, Louise Perry, is a, she's a, a post-liberal feminist who's uh, worked at, um, at a rape crisis centers. And, and she's written a really challenging new book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And Louise Perry's main argument is that the sexual revolution that we have inherited from, you know, around the 60s uh, was sold with the idea of women's liberation, economic liberation, sexual liberation, and she has found as someone who's walked through uh, this in her own life, in her own experiences, uh, uh, also working with victims of abuse, that 
this movement has been largely a lie. And actually, the whole cultural movement has largely served the sexual desires of men. And that women have been getting pretty well hosed in the whole process. And it's interesting, for over the, over the last 20 years or so, or so, I would sense this, that more and more a sense that women are afraid of men. And I, I'm not sure I blame them. Uh, we have stripped our culture of any vision of what it means to be a good man, and we've pumped our young men full of pornography and sent them out into the world. And I think I'd be afraid too. I was just talking to my son, Will, last night. He's 16, and he was saying how infrequent it is in movies nowadays to have a positive picture of what it means to be a man. You know, you got the kind of useless idiot, Homer Simpsons, and things like that. And uh, if women are afraid of men, it's all the more that we need a sermon on what the Bible says about being a man. And I don't think that we need a simple defense of manhood. There's plenty of uh, macho defenses of manhood that are not helpful. What we need is the Bible's vision of a good man, a righteous man, a redeemed man. And our culture massively needs this. Our, our church needs this. Uh, the men in our church need to know this is what it's expected to be a Christian man. Our young men and boys need a vision. And I think it's also so important so that the women in our community can know in their hearts, I know men that I trust. That's my hope for the women in our community. And so what is that vision? Well, uh, Rob Rayburn, who uh, is an old uh, pastor, who's been a mentor of mine, he's a pastor, he's retired now, he's been a pastor for 40 years. I remember him defining a godly man as, as one who uses his strength for the good of others. A godly man is, is a man who uses his strength for the good of others. Love working through strength. And I know that uh, some of you might say, well, what's the difference between a godly man and a godly woman? Don't, aren't women supposed to, you know, use their strength for the good of others as well? And actually, the Bible makes very few generalities that, you know, men are like this and women are like that. Uh, but one of the main differences is that men are physically stronger than women. Proverbs uh, says that the glory of a young man is his strength. 1 Peter 3 says that in, in a marriage, a husband is to show honor to his wife as to the weaker vessel. 1 John says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And of course, the Bible also says that women have their own strength. You know, the great uh, chapter in Proverbs 31 about the kind of ideal woman says she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. But even Louise Perry titles the second chapter of her book, Men and Women Are Different. And the main difference she highlights is physical strength. Let me read a paragraph from her. She says, let's start with some of the physiological differences. Adult women are approximately half as strong as adult men in the upper body and two-thirds as strong in the lower body. On average, men can bench press more mass than women can by a factor of roughly two and a half and can punch harder with a similar factor. In hand grip strength, 90% of females produce less force than 95% of males. In other words, almost all women are weaker than almost all men, and any feminist analysis of the power dynamic between men and women has to begin with the recognition of this fact. And so one of the biggest questions 
a culture can face, it affects everyone. It affects the men, it affects the women, it affects the children, it affects the elderly, is what are the men going to do with their strength? And in this passage, I think 1 Samuel offers David as an ideal picture of, uh, of a godly man, what a godly man looks like. And so today, as we think about being a man, I just want to make uh, three simple observations from this passage, okay? This is what they are, that God makes men loving, God makes men strong, and God makes men by his spirit. God makes men loving, God makes men strong, and God makes men by his spirit. So first, three points today. The first is God makes men who are loving. God makes men who are loving. And in fact, if you look at the instructions to husbands in, in the New Testament, the most important thing that a husband is supposed to do is love his wife as Christ loves the church. And I love the language that's used in Ephesians 5 that he is to cherish her. That men are, need to learn to cherish and uh, the most masculine quality, according to the Bible, is love. And so what does this passage say about a man who knows how to love? Well, there's so much you could say about that. I'm just going to highlight two things from this passage that struck me. Okay, The first is, a loving man is sensitive to the inner life. A loving man is sensitive to the inner life, the inner life of, of feelings, of emotion. And the setting of this passage is that the Lord has torn the kingdom from King Saul and uh, where previously the Spirit of the Lord had empowered him as God's anointed king. You see what happens there in verse 14. Now it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And we don't know a lot about this harmful spirit that came upon Saul, but it... Uh, I imagine it was some kind of depression, a heaviness that came upon him. We read about it later in 1 first, uh, first Samuel that uh, it involved uh, envy about David. There was a lot of anger. So you just imagine his inner life is just filled with turmoil. And he's just turning over things in his mind. And maybe you know what that feels like. And so it, sa so it says in verse 15, And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God comes upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And so they call in David. And uh, David is uh, a musician. David is, uh, has the spirit of an artist. We also know that uh, David was a poet. He wrote probably about half of the Psalms. Uh, so he, he wrote prayers he was a man who connected to the heart. And I'll tell you, basically the, the superpower of any artist is the ability to connect with the inner life. Uh, they know and understand, artists know what we feel. And they can express those feelings, they can connect with those feelings, they can heighten those feelings, they can stir those feelings within us. And I think the reason artists are able to do that is because you know, artists are often some of the saddest people that feel emotions so strongly. And so that's why they're able to express things that all of us say, I don't know how you tapped into that thing that's so deep in me. It's because the artists feel them so acutely themselves. And uh, something like that is what a man needs to learn, a connection to the inner life. And if a man has a family, he needs to learn to connect with the inner life of his wife and his children to connect with the inner life of his friends and people at church. I mean, that's a huge part of what community and relationships are. It means listening and hearing and want to hear about what's happening in the inner life. 
And, and so that's why I say a loving man is sensitive to our inner life, to our feelings, and to our emotions. And some of you might say, well, I'm not an artist. I'm not, like, I'm not a feeler like that. Not everyone's going to be an artist or a musician, but just by reading the Bible, the Bible is a study of the inner life. And if you're a Christian, it's going to bring you into an exploration of the inner life. You know, Jesus was a storyteller. The Apostle Paul was incredibly affectionate. His letters talk about his love for people and his emotional connection. And so first, God makes men loving by making them attuned to the inner life of others. A loving man is sensitive to the inner life. Okay? But the second thing we see in this passage about love is that a loving man is willing to serve. A loving man is willing to serve and to make himself low. And so David comes to play music for Saul in his, in, you know, Saul's in his depression. You see what happens there in verse 21. It says, And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Now, in this pas- the passage we looked at last week, David was anointed the new king of Israel. So David's about to enter into this new role of leadership. And yet the Lord has him first enter a role of submission, a role of service and obedience. And, you know, men in the Bible are are often called to roles of leadership. Here David, you know, is becoming a king. Men are called to be the heads of their households and, and are called to serve as officers in the church. And I think it's meaningful that before they enter these positions of authority, they must learn service and submission themselves. And one of my favorite um, descriptions of this comes from the, the rule of St. Benedict's. The, the rule was written in the 6th century, and it describes the, the, the life of these monks who you know, come into these monasteries. And uh, the monasteries were highly hierarchical systems. So when you come in as a new brother, you're at the bottom of the, the, ch- of the chain, and everyone who's been there longer is, has superiority over you, and you have to give them obedience. And all of that obedience ultimately goes to the abbot. Abbot was kind of the father of the monastery. And so when you read the rule, uh, chapter 5, right towards the beginning of the rule, is called obedience. And I want to read a couple paragraphs to you. It says, The first step of humility is unhesitating obedience. Which, which comes naturally to those who cherish Christ above all. Because of the holy service they have professed, or because of dread of hell, or, uh, and for the glory of everlasting life, they carry out the superior's order as promptly as if the command came from God himself. Such people as these immediately put aside their own concerns, abandon their own will, and lay down whatever they have in hand, leaving it unfinished, with the ready step of obedience, they follow the voice of authority in their actions. So you imagine that men had been hem- humbled in their lives by this kind of death to self. What would be the kind of fruit that would come av- after you know, submitting to this kind of obedience? Well, it goes on. It says, they no longer live by their own judgment, giving in to their whims and appetites. Rather, they walk according to another's decisions and directions. Choosing to live in monasteries and to have an abbot over them, men of this resolve unquestionably conform to the saying of the Lord, I have come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's a beautiful line. And how much do we consider such humble submission to be a prerequisite to leadership as a man? 
And you might wonder, well, where would we experience that? Because most of us are not going to go live in a monastery. Well, I'll tell you where obedience starts is that boys learning this in the home. And I think how God has made it is that a boy needs to learn to give obedience and submission and respect to a woman in his home, his mother, and it should be enforced by the father before he grows up to be the head of a household where he has a woman under his care. He first needs to learn that respect. We also learn obedience in our workplaces where we have superiors over us and in the church. And you might say, well, that's easy for me to say. I'm a senior pastor of a church. No, I'm in submission. I've taken a vow to be in submission to the elders of this church. I've taken a vow to be in submission to a presbytery that has authority over me. Authority is an important part. Submission of authority is an important part of learning to be a humble and loving man. And so how does God make a man loving? The starting place is a care for the inner life of others and a willingness to serve. I'm willing to submit and willing to be under the authority of another. Now, for some men, this might be challenging, you know, the sensitive side, the emotional side, of relational side of connecting. But for some men, actually, this is very natural. And it's, they're sensitive. They, you know, they're willing to get along and connect with people. And so those men, for those men, our second point might be more challenging. It's not only, the, uh, not only does God make men who are loving, but second, our second point here is that God makes men who are strong. God gives men strength. And the description of David's strength is there in verse 18, where it says, One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. And so what do we learn about being a man of strength? Well, four, I just want to list off four things from that verse that we see in verse 18. Okay, four things that we see. The first thing we see is that a strong man has skills. I think this first point actually is not just about men. It's really about men and women. Is, uh, David was skilled in playing. He knew how to play the lyre. And Proverbs talks about the value of being a person that has skills. Uh, Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says this. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And basically that verse is exactly what's happening in this passage, that David was skillful in playing the lyre, and so when the king was depressed and he needed someone to come play and soothe his soul, who did he call? This one who was skillful at playing the lyre. The skillful man is not going to stand before obscure men, but stands before kings. I'll tell you, the only way to learn a skill is through discipline. Skills take a long time to develop. It's the doing of the same thing over and over again. And, you know, I've been thinking about this recently. I'm 42 now. And you begin to realize, like, you get into your 40s and it's like, oh, there's certain things I've been doing in my adult life for 20 years. And, uh, and things change over 20 years. There are things that seem so small in the moment, but they build over time. And I think that's a question that many of us could ask. What are the things in my life that I, if I do this over and over again for 20 years, I'm going to have a really useful skill, a skill that's useful for my family, it's useful in my workplace, for whoever I work, do my work with, a skill that's uh, useful in the church. Skills are valuable, okay? So first, a strong man has skills. Second, a strong man is willing to fight. A strong man is willing to fight. David was a man of valor 
a man of war. And actually, this is related to his uh, skills. Uh, you know, he has musical skills. David plays the lyre. He's an artist. But it also, David says in Psalm 144, he says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And so what are men supposed to do with their strength? One of them, generally speaking, is men are responsible to protect women and children. And for David, this would have looked like fighting against neighboring peoples that were coming into Israel lands, and they were pillaging, and they were stealing, and they were killing. And so men use their strength to provide a place of safety where women and children can flourish. That's one of the responsibilities of being a godly man. And I think actually more broadly than that, some of you might say, well, you know, I, there's not a battle around for me to go fight Philistines in. I think there's also an element that more generally, this is a willingness to enter into conflict. And to be a man and to say, you know what, then when there is a conflict that's disrupting the flourishing of my family or in my church or in my community, I'm willing to step into it thoughtfully and engage it. I'm not going to just check out and say, you know what, someone else can handle that. I need to engage. I need to listen. I need to speak. And that's related to a third thing we learn in this passage. is that a, So we see a strong man has skills. A strong man is willing to fight. A strong man understands and speaks the truth. A strong man understands and speaks the truth. David was prudent in speech. And one, you know, you might read that, that he's prudent in speech means that he's eloquent, he's good with words. But, you know, a really wooden translation of that would say that he was intelligent with the word. And the word in the Bible is God's word. A man of strength is a man of conviction and principles. He's thought through what the Bible teaches. He knows theology he makes sure his family goes to a Bible-teaching church. And, of course, again, uh, women have this same responsibility. But it does say in 1 Corinthians that if a theological question comes up in a home, a wife should talk to her husband and say, what, what, is, what does our family believe about this? What does the Bible teach about this? You know, guide us into the truth. And I'll tell you, you know, if a man does not rely on his wife for wisdom— that is foolish. I mean, I can't even imagine living my life or doing my job without the wisdom of my wife. And I talked to her about this sermon yesterday. Say, I need your input on, on giving a sermon on being a man. But also, I think it can happen the other way where a woman doesn't trust the convictions of her husband to lead and to guard the family. That's some of the protection. Say, I need to protect my family against, uh, um, uh, against falsehood. And, uh, and, of course, that's not just in families. That's in the church. We need the men in the church to do that for the, the women who are here and maybe don't have, you know, a husband or brothers or families around them. We do that for one another. What does the t Bible teach us about this? And I think this is an important point because often women are more studious in the church. They read their Bibles more. They often form their convictions more. This is a call to men to say, this is my responsibility to know what I believe and to speak the truth. And that leads to a final trait that we see here. So a strong man is skilled, willing to fight, understands and speaks the truth. But fourth, a strong man takes responsibility. And if you were to summarize everything I've said here, this is probably uh, the best of the summaries, is that men are called to take responsibility. When the Bible says that a man is the head of his household, it doesn't mean that he gets to boss everyone around and everyone's his servant and he gets to, you know, they're there to serve his desires. That's not what that means. It means he is responsible for the well-being of his wife and children. 
When things are not well for any reason, the man is not passive and he says, things aren't well in my home. I need to attend to them. I'm responsible for this. I'm responsible for the well-being of the people that have been entrusted to my care. And you see here, David is going to become a king. He's going to be responsible for a whole nation. But where does that start? In verse 19, it says, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. David was a shepherd, and he learned responsibility in the fields and caring for the sheep that prepared him to care for a nation. And so what we said so far is here's a vision of, of a godly man is who God has made loving. And that means that he's sensitive to the inner life and feelings of those around him. And like David, he was able to reach into the heart of Saul during his depression. And men are servants. They must learn obedience and humility before they learn leadership and authority. And also God makes men strong. And that looks like being skilled, willing to fight, understanding and speaking the truth, and ultimately willing to take responsibility for the well-being of others. Now you might say, okay, that's a beautiful, ideal vision. But it raises the question, what if I'm not like that? What if I don't know how to connect with the inner life? What if I don't even know my convictions about the Bible? I mean, the Bible's huge. There's so much to read in there. There's so much to study. It's hard for me to follow that. I have a lot going on in my life. And that's why we need our final point, is that God ultimately makes men by his spirit. It is the work of God to make men and to make women. But C.S. Lewis wrote an article in 1940 that was called The Necessity of Chivalry. And in it, he said that the medieval ideal of, sh- of chivalry is basically exactly what I've been describing in this sermon. He says that these two qualities, love and strength, do not naturally go together. And uh, I'm going to read to you a paragraph. This is what he says. The medieval ideal brought together two things which have no natural tendency to gravitate towards one another. It brought them together for that very reason. It taught humility and forbearance to the great warrior because everyone knew by experience how much he usually needed that lesson. It demanded valor of the urbane and modest man, because everyone knew that he was as likely as not to be a milksop. Now, I think one of the biggest deficiencies in a lot of like biblical masculinity movements is it can just send the message, you need to be a man, man up, men. And as if we can make ourselves like that, that's not how the Bible talks. The Bible says we are God's workmanship. And actually, it's the same thing that C.S. Lewis says in his essay. Listen to what he says. He says, The man who combines both characters, the knight, is a work not of nature, but of art. Of that art which has human beings instead of canvas or marble for its medium. What Lewis says is a man is like a rough piece of marble who needs a great artist to come and chisel away the rough parts and make him into a work of art. And you see what David, uh, you see with David in this story, how he's able to play music that soothes the heart of Saul, how he's a man of valor, a man of conviction. But this passage begins in verse 13 by saying the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And at the end of verse 18, it says that the Lord was with him. David did not become like this on his own strength. God makes men by his spirit. Becoming a man is not something you do in your own wisdom. It's a work of grace. And you just think about just coming here. If you're a man and you say, you know, I worship God on the Lord's day. What does God just do in this time together? He's teaching us love. He's going into our inner lives. 
We're learning submission. We're sitting under God's word and learning submission. We are gaining skills on how to live. We're standing against the culture and fighting for what's true. We're learning to understand the truth and form convictions. Everything that we need to take responsibility, God is giving us by grace. Now, I began this sermon uh, by talking particularly about how men treat women. And part of the tragic part of 1 Samuel is I've said that David is depicted here as an ideal man, but as we read the story, we're going to find out that he wasn't. And his greatest failures were particularly with two women, Bathsheba and Tamar, both women abused in his home and under his care. And what this tells us is we realize David's not the ideal man. We don't have an ideal man in this church. The ideal man is only Jesus. He is the perfection of love and strength. And the way to become a man is not to be yelled at that you need to be a man. It is to be discipled and apprenticed, to be loved and experience the strength of Jesus, who is the true man. And that's what we've been saying in this whole sermon. It is is God who makes us loving. It is God who makes us strong. But ultimately, it is God who makes us by the spirit of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word. And uh, we feel how deeply we need your truth in our lives. We also feel how deeply we need your grace, Lord. Um, Each one of us, as men present in this room, we see the ways that we fail to live up to the standard you've set before us in the scriptures. And yet, Lord, we are here because we long for it. And we thank you for the, the, the fruit that we do see in our lives and our families. Help us, Lord. And uh, I do pray that our church would be a place of safety, of protection, where men, women, and children are flourishing under your loving care. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.